Good morning. It is a real pleasure for me to be here with you today. I want to thank Reverend Dr. Jonathan Walton for inviting me, and I want to thank Reverend Dr. Lucy Forster-Smith and Reverend Copenhaver and seminarians Adam Vander Tuig and Patrick Johnson and Danny Bolton for a gracious welcome this morning. And I want to bring you greetings from the community that is Chicago Theological Seminary, our faculty, our staff, our students, our alums, and our board of trustees. And I would like to recognize a trustee here today, Dr. Sharon Watson-Fluger. Thank you for being here today. It's my pleasure to be with you. Uh, we've been thinking at Chicago Theological Seminary for a while about interdependence. Interdependence on a global scale and interdependence in relation to our life and work in this world. So I'd like for us to spend some time this morning considering interdependence and what that means for the flourishing of life. Please focus with me this morning on the topic, reconsidering our place in the world. I want us to turn back to our Hebrew Bible text from Hosea to help us begin this consideration. You know, I never really liked or appreciated the book of Hosea. It is full, I know that's terrible to say, isn't it? But it's full of violent imagery. It's blatantly sexist. There's just not much redeemable there. And yet, if you're thinking about interdependence, perhaps there is something redeemable in the book of Hosea. I decided to take another look at Hosea 4, 1 to 3. Now, I'm a Bible scholar, and you know how weird Bible scholars are. We don't like anyone else's translations but our own because we think the other translators miss some nuance in the Hebrew Bible. And so I did my own translation just to be careful with the wording. So I would like to read that translation for you as we begin this consideration. Hear the word of God, O people of Israel, for God has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because there is no truth, because there is no kindness, and because there is no knowledge of God in the land, swearing, lying, killing, stealing, faithlessness, they break through. Then blood reaches blood. On account of these things, the earth mourns. All who live in it languish, along with the wild animals and the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea. Let me just repeat just a little part of that. Swearing, lying, killing, stealing, faithlessness. They break through, then blood reaches blood. And on account of these things, the earth mourns. All who live in it languish, along with the wild animals and the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea are perishing. God has a controversy, a dispute with the people living on this earth. Why? Because there's no trust, there's no kindness, there's no knowledge of God. Instead, there's swearing, lying, killing, stealing, and faithlessness. 
Those things pervade life. So everything dies. And it is because of these things, no trust, no kindness, no knowledge of God, that the earth mourns. It is because they're swearing and lying and killing and stealing and faithlessness. All that live on the earth, people, wild animals, bird and fish grow weaker and feebler as all of life moves toward perishing. Wow. The writer of Hosea is clearly pointing to the interconnectedness of life. Before we explore this interdependence, I want to make a couple of interesting notes about what we can tell from the Hebrew of this text. The earth in this text is both a victim and an agent. We like to think of people or things as either victim or agent, but in this text, the earth is both victim and agent. The earth is the victim of the actions and lack of actions of the earth's inhabitants, and the earth acts as a consequence of its victimhood with devastating effect. Another interesting note, the text listing of humanity, then animals, then birds, then fish, is a list given in opposite order from the creation story in Genesis 1. The order of creation is fish, birds, animals, humanity. So we could read this text as a kind of undoing of creation. Because there's no trust, no kindness, no knowledge of God, because there is swearing and lying and killing and stealing and faithlessness, God's creation is being undone. So, I'd like to suggest to you that this text invites us to reconsider our place in the world, to consider our interconnectedness, our interdependence. We get that concept, right? It makes sense. It's easy to understand. I need you, you need me, we all need each other, we have mutual dependency, we share sacrifice and we share responsibility. We can get that concept. We may even realize that we cannot avoid interdependence. Interdependence is not just an ideal, it actually is happening all the time, but we can ignore it. We are able to ignore it. We can't make it go away. It's a given. Think about turning on a water faucet to get a glass of water. To be able to do that, I need plumbers, engineers, chemists, the manufacturer of pipes, the manufacturer of spigots, the reservoir, the people who built the reservoir, the water meters, the people who build and service them and their homes and food and clothes, the electricity for all that to work, a glass which requires sand and the gathering of sand as well as minerals, the processing plant, the gas to transport material, and on and on. Interdependence. We understand the concept of interdependence from a variety of perspectives. Let's think about interdependence in terms of our environment. There are living relationships between all living things. There are dependencies among all living things, as suggested by our biblical text today. An ecosystem can serve as a small example of what translates into a global environment. Let's take a specific example. My family has a condo in Indy Atlantic, Florida. I love that place. It's my place of peace. One of the things I love about Indy Atlantic is the Indian River estuary, an amazing, 
beautiful place. And, but, there's an ecological crisis going on, and the crisis demonstrates interdependence. The first hint that something was wrong in the shallow lagoons and brackish water came a couple years ago in the river just south of Kennedy Space Center is where it is. Three manatees, those slow-moving, plant-munching, beautiful and graceful, three manatees died suddenly without explanation in a spot where deaths are rare. Inquiry into those deaths produced a trail of hundreds of deaths across the Indian River estuary, one of the richest marine ecosystems in this country. Along that nearly 50 miles by the Kennedy Space Center, some 280 manatees died in the space of one year, half of them in the same sudden manner as the three victims I mentioned. As manatees were dying, hundreds of pelicans began dying, and shortly thereafter, so did a number of dolphins. The cause of the deaths remains complicated and continues to evade easy explanation, but one question has become central. Are the deaths symptoms of something more ominous, such as the collapse of the natural balance that sustains the estuary? The fear is that the ecosystem that supports over 4,000 species of life, along with fisheries and tourism and other businesses that produce close to $4 billion annually, is collapsing under the strain of decades of pollution. The evidence is compelling. In 2011 and 2012, blankets of algae covered the area, algae that killed fields of underwater seagrass that were the building blocks of the estuary system. The grasses, as you probably know, are the breeding uh, grounds for fish. They serve as cover for small fish from larger predatory fish and are count home to countless creatures at the bottom of the food chain, also favorite menu item for the manatees. The dead seagrass was, grass was supplanted by a macroalgae, fast-growing seaweed that clumps into huge collections and drifts in the water. In addition, the estuary is badly overloaded with nitrogen, an essential plant nutrient found in fertilizers, rotting organic material, and human and animal waste. State and federal regulations long ago limited the dumping of nitrogen-rich effluents from sewage treatment plants. But those so-called non-point sources of pollution, like lawn fertilizer and septic tanks, is much harder to control. Now some say the rapid urbanization of the Florida coast from the boom years of the space age until now appears to have pushed the accumulation of these wastes. The ecosystem seems to be breaking. Interdependence. A recent report from NASA out of Goddard Space Flight Center began with the words, quote, civilization was pretty great while it lasted, wasn't it? End quote. The report concludes, we only have a few decades left before everything we know and hold dear collapses. The report was written by mathematician Safa Monteshare of the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center along with a team of scientists and explains that modern civilization is doomed. They're not blaming any one particular group. They are saying that the entire fundamental structure and nature of our society is to blame. They looked at five risk factors for societal collapses, population, climate, water, agriculture, and energy, 
and concluded that all societal collapses over the past 5,000 years have involved both, quote, the stretching of resources due to the strain placed on the ecological carrying capacity and the economic stratification of society into elites and masses. So they say the elite population restricts the flow of resources accessible to the masses, accumulating a surplus for themselves that is high enough to strain natural resources. Eventually, this kind of situation will inevitably result in the destruction of society. The report says that elite power will buffer the detrimental effects uh, for themselves much later than it does for the masses, allowing the privilege to continue business as usual despite impending catastrophe. The worst case scenarios predicted by Montessori are pretty dire indeed, including sudden collapse due to famine or a drawn out breakdown of society due to overconsumption of natural resources. The best case scenario involves recognition of the looming catastrophe by elites and a more equitable restructuring of society. But it, you probably wonder with me if that's really going to happen. So we get the interdependence concept ecologically. We know of and about interdependence in other arenas of life. In many of our faith traditions, think of the South African concept of Ubuntu. It's all about interdependence. The literal meaning of the word is human. As Desmond Tutu explains, my humanity is inextricably caught up in yours. I am who I am because of you. I am who I am because of who everyone is. Interdependence. Everything is related. We get the concept. We even get that interdependence is a really important concept. We get that it's a foundational concept. I need you. You need me. We cannot separate. All of life is inextricably bound. But even though we recognize this concept, we comprehend it in our minds, it somehow does not translate into the formative aspects of our lived lives. We can talk about it, we can even be excited about it, but somehow we're not living into the concept of interdependence. Or maybe it's just me. I understand the concept, and on a deep level, I think it is perhaps the most crucial thing we can and should be living into at this moment. And yet, living into inter interdependence evades me. And from what I see around me, it evades more than just me. It evades our society, because if we were being interdependent, if we were living into, into our interdependency, things would be different for everyone, for everything. If we were being interdependent, things would be different for those who are the least of these, would be different for our planet, it would be things would be different for the homeless, for the, the Indian River estuary, for Ferguson, for Chicago, for Baltimore, for Boston, things would be different. But it's not just for the least of these that things would be different. Things would be different for those of us sitting in this room. Things would be different for George Bush and things would be different for George Soros. We get the concept. We know we are interdependent, but we are not being interdependent. Why is that? There are obstacles to living into our interdependence. Could it be that Hosea gives us a hint to those obstacles? No truth. 
no kindness, no knowledge of God in the land. Instead, swearing, lying, killing, stealing, faithlessness bring on the collapse of all life. There are obstacles that prevent us from living and operating out of this fundamental premise. One is the DNA of our country, right? And, and we're in Boston, so we should know about that. Instead of interdependence, what do we focus on? What is the creation myth of this country? Independence. It is the history told in fourth grade. Around 1620, 100 people get on a ship because of religious oppression and came as immigrants, we might add, to this land. Skipping over the details, we rush to the Boston Tea Party, the famed action of the American colonial defiance against protest against taxation, uh, threw 342 chests of tea overboard, Declaration of Independence, I'm running through history really quickly here, um, and a war later, and the United States of America has what? Independence. Independence is fundamental to the DNA of this country. Independence is a premier virtue. Now I want to pause here to comment on the relationship between independence and interdependence. I do not see them as a binary, nor are they mutually exclusive. They might appear to be a binary, but it seems to me that we may that that our independence is part of interdependence. Interdependence is the overarching concept, and independence is one aspect of interdependence. Our problem is that we're living in the inversion of that, where independence is the overarching umbrella and interdependence is one piece, and the consequences of that inversion are devastating for the flourishing of life. But it's not just independence that makes recognizing and living into interdependence a challenge. Right along with that independence is the glorification of individualism, self-reliance, exceptionalism, self-determination, which can and often do result in selfishness. So along with entrenchment uh, in the notion of independence, we have another obstacle, one that hits particularly home. That is, how do we see ourselves as part of the problem? So I want to use the Occupy movement to give us an example. I'll start with a confession. I did not get all that involved in the Occupy movement. Why? Well, I was ambivalent. You might say, what? On the one hand, I totally agree with the effort. The excesses of the 1% are outrageous. No one needs that much money. No one needs that much profit. No one deserves to have the country's economic system prop up their lifestyles as currently happens in our country especially not on the backs of the rest of us. The manipulations and control wrought by those banks and their employees, just unreasonable. The whole system should come crashing down. Those folks did not earn what they had. They took what they had on the backs of others. So on the one hand, I agree with the effort. And yet for me, there is also an on the other hand. Two points stand out for me on the other hand. First. I'm the president of Chicago Theological Seminary, profoundly, eternally grateful for the extremely generous gifts of the faithful, wealthy persons who support the mission and work of Chicago Theological Seminary. We could not do the amazing work we do without the generosity of people who have a lot more money than I have. I will repeat, we could not do our work 
without their generosity. We will be out of business without faithful people faithfully sharing their resources. And so, on the other hand, I have some ambivalence, but that's not all of my ambivalence. I watch the movement, I watch the people in Grant Park, in Chicago, Zuccotti Park in New York City, 95 cities across 82 countries. There was a part of me that couldn't help admiring them, but then also I had this thought, really, really people, you can rage on against the machine, Wall Street, really? You and I can rage against this 1%? No, we can't. Why? Because if we really care about this, if we really think that the system needs to be overturned, then we need to be about occupying ourselves, this entire nation. We are all 1%. This country is 1%. Here's some data for you. First of all, the rich, the 1% in the U.S., are very, very rich. The richest 1% of the U.S. population owns over a third of this country's wealth. There are 3.1 million millionaires in this country. The U.S. has over 400 billionaires, more than any other country in the world. But really, the bottom line is this. To make the 1% in the world, what do you think you need as an annual income? $34,000. The data shows that to make, to be the 1% in this world, you only need an annual income of $34,000. The average family in the United States has nearly 50 times more than that of the world's poorest. More than 3 billion people live on less than $2 a day. So what can we say? If we're serious about this, we need to occupy ourselves. I guess what I'm suggesting is that we are all trapped in webs of unhealthy, egoistic states, states that deny our interdependence, therefore denying our humanity and the flourishing of life. I think we want things to be different, but is that a hopeless desire? Can we reconsider our place in this world? Can interdependence become the primary basis for our lives? How do we turn this ship? We need a conscious change. I hope we can consider interdependence as we, as people of faith, work together. So I close with a question, a worry, and a hope. First, my question, if we want to be interdependent, we can certainly work on that. You can work on that at your community here in, at Harvard, and I hope you will. But just as my small choice of using certain kinds of light bulbs is good, it has little sustainable effect on climate issues. So our being interdependent in one small community will probably have little substantial effect on the rest of the world, although it might be really good for us. I'm assuming we would also like to see interdependence become an operative worldview, an operative way of the world. That means we need structural and policy shifts. We need an interdependence movement. And if that is right, then I have a question. How might we go about helping ourselves and others open our hearts and minds to interdependence in our lived lives? We're talking about a shift in worldview, not a spoken worldview, although that's important, but a lived worldview. We ought to be part of making that happen. 
I know that we must change ourselves first, right? Be the change you want to see. But is that enough? It can't be because we're interdependent, right? We create society, but society is also creating us. Secondly, I want to trouble the waters just a little bit. We can recognize the givenness of interdependence. We get the concept, we see the desirability. Um, but how do we, does this happen in actuality? It would be great if we could just change the worldview to interdependence. Uh, let's think about what that would mean, though. How do you adopt a whole new way of thinking? It's not enough just to adopt a way of thinking. We're not going to say one day, oh, we've arrived at interdependence. What does it mean? It means that interdependence has to be a primary assumption in our lives. But how is that evidence? How does it manifest itself? What are the implications for me as a woman who continues to live in a world that is sexist for living out the primary assumption of interdependence with men who continue to benefit from male privilege? What are implications for persons of color who tend to, who continue to live in our racist world for living out the primary assumption of interdependence for those of us who have benefited from and continue to benefit from white privilege? What are the implications for LGBTI persons who continue to live in a homophobic world uh, for living out a primary assumption of interdependence with folks who continue to benefit from heterosexist privilege? What about Christian privilege? All of these scenarios are operative, even in multiple formats. So what does our interdependence look like? How do we be interdependent? How do we live and lead differently because we are interdependent? That's my worry. Finally, my hope. Can we find hope in working to reverse the conditions set forth in Hosea? What if we work to rid the world of swearing and lying and killing and stealing and faithlessness? What if we work to restore the world truth, kindness, and knowledge of God? I believe we can take some hope in this struggle by working toward that. And we need to do it. Why? We will know that hope when we recognize and live in our dependence that always already exists. Let us, as people of faith, be about this work so that the earth will not mourn, so that the inhabitants of the earth will not languish, so that the wild animals and birds and fish will not perish. Amen.